You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. The events that we are to celebrate, uh, starting now with this official Founders Day message or Founders Day celebration, took place in May of 1890. If we think back in our minds, if we try to recreate the world of 1890, if we allow the curtain, so to speak, to go up on the scene in the year of our great year of grace, 1890, we will find things that are remarkably similar. For instance, second house behind the post office, right over here. Any of you play baseball? Can throw a hymn book and hit that house. Second part. Well, after. Try. <laughs> Just over here, second house behind the post office is the house that John Wesley Hughes lived in in retirement. Houses are very much the same now as they were in 1890, or 1890 style houses are familiar to us. I'll tell you something else that's the same. Sunday dinner. People ate Sunday dinner about the same kind of things that you eat on Sunday dinner. Roast beef, potatoes, gravy, rolls, some kind of little jelly, and a heavy dessert. Coffee, iced tea. Not iced tea. That wasn't invented until 1904. Lemonade. Lemonade and ice water, milk. Sunday dinner has been about the same for many years, over a century. Uh, babies have dressed about the same for a hundred years. And people have dressed about the same for weddings. Wedding dresses and uh, men's formal clothes have remained about the same since uh, the 1880s in this country and in Europe as well. Some things have changed beyond recognition. If we look at the continent of Europe in 1890, we will find that Russia is not governed by the Soviet government. It is not governed by any sort of communist at all. It is governed by the Tsar Alexander III, an amiable, stupid man, <laughs> whose foreign and domestic policy consists entirely of looking into the past. He's very strong and amuses himself by unbending horseshoes. Germany is not divided. There is no Cold War. There is no Iron Curtain. There is no Berlin Wall. There is no taint on Germany in 1890. It is a monarchy also. It is ruled by Kaiser Wilhelm II, a young man, very bright. He was trilingual, could speak French, German, and English, each without an accent. Britain was still ruled, as it had been for 53 years, by Queen Victoria, who had another 11 years to reign in 1890. 1890 was the year in which General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, became famous. General William Booth is the only Salvationist who ever wrote a book that anyone outside the Salvation Army ever read. <laughs> the simple truth, take it from me. He wrote a book called In Darkest England and the Way Out in 1890, really is the official beginning of Salvation Army uh, social services in England and in America. If we cross the Atlantic in our minds, we come to the world's great republic, United States of America, which in 1890 had a population of 63 million people. The state of Kentucky, Commonwealth of Kentucky, one of two commonwealths in our glorious republic, had a population of 1.8 million people in 1890, which means that comparatively speaking, Kentucky was a much larger state in 1890 than it is now. It had over 3% of the population of the United States in 1890. It has uh, about 1.4% of the population of the United States now. The bluegrass state. The governor in 1890 was a man named Simon Bolivar Buckner. And of the existing states then, of which there were 44, Kentucky had, and in some minds still has, the most beautiful state song. 
The bluegrass region of that commonwealth was well served by railroads. And a railroad trip in 1890 would have been rather different in Kentucky from what it would be today if you could take a railroad trip in Kentucky, which incidentally, you cannot. <laughs> but if you had that taste in your mind, you'd have to do it in your imagination. In 1890, surprisingly enough, two thirds of the state of Kentucky was still covered by virgin forest, never been cut, virgin forest, which there's hardly any left in the whole world. Two thirds of this state in 1890 was virgin forest. Yet that did not prevent the state of Kentucky from being the nation's leading producer as it is to this day of bourbon whiskey, of burley tobacco, and of thoroughbred horses. Same now as then, some things have not changed. In the bluegrass region, five trains a day passed from the city of Cincinnati through Lexington to Chattanooga. The one from Lexington to Chattanooga was called the Queen and Crescent Route, and it was operated by a railroad company. The tracks are right through town yet, but the company's changed names many times. But in the particular time we're discussing in 1890, it was, if I can remember, the Cincinnati, New Orleans, and Texas Pacific Railroad. Five times a day, a passenger train passed from Lexington through Wilmore, crossed High Bridge through Danville, and went on eventually to Chattanooga. In 1893, Bedeker, very famous company in Leipzig, Germany, published uh, travel guides. They're quite famous, these Bedeker travel guides. Well, they published one only for America in 1893. And the page devoted to the bluegrass has the following set. The route between uh, Cincinnati and Chattanooga traverses pleasant country, but none of the stations are important. A harsh judgment. Because in May of 1890, in this station, Wilmore, a noble experiment was about to be launched. A man named John Wesley Hughes had been led and had resolved to accept the leading of God to found a college. This was a very dubious enterprise in 1890, because you will be surprised to hear that Kentucky was well stocked with colleges in 1890. It was among the leading southern states in that regard in 1890. There were 13 colleges already in the state of Kentucky in 1890. Ours would be the 14th. The largest college in Kentucky in 1890 was Berea, with 400 students. It was far larger than the University of Kentucky in Lexington, which had 290 students. What had led John Wesley Hughes to do such an outlandish and dubious thing? Well, to know that, we have to know something about the life of John Wesley Hughes. He was born on May the 16th, 1852, in Owen County, Kentucky. He was raised in a family that was not outright poor, nor did he ever claim to have been raised by a poor family. Uh, his family had a, a farm of several hundred acres. He had to work hard, but they did not want for food. He was raised by his mother, along with his brothers and sisters, his father having died when he was little. For reasons which are not completely clear from the general sources that I relied upon for this presentation, and by the way, I would like to acknowledge and thank, and see Dr. Thacker is here. I relied very heavily on Dr. Thacker's uh, excellent manuscript, his historic centennial history of Asbury College. I read the first three chapters with great delight, and I want to thank Dr. Thacker for his, for his help in preparing these remarks this morning. I meant to say that at the end, but I know I would forget. And while it was on my mind, I wanted to make that acknowledgement. Back to my story. <laughs> At about age 12, for reasons, as I say, which are not entirely clear from the, the general histories that I looked at, John Wesley Hughes found himself under religious conviction. Now, in his memoirs, he says that he was not raised in a religious environment, but that cannot be the case, because it'd be unusual for a 12-year-old boy to find himself, he believed, hounded by heaven. He was under deep religious conviction. He was troubled. An unusual uh, response for a 12-year-old raised in a non-religious environment. I think he was too harsh on his mother looking back on it. At age 16, he was gloriously converted. And like many new converts, he became a zealot, an evangelist, a preacher. Of course, the other people in the small town noticed this and they commented, that boy is going to be a preacher. It was destiny. John Wesley Hughes announced to his family that he had aspiration. He wished to become a preacher. There was only one defect 
John Wesley Hughes at age 16 was completely illiterate. He had never set foot inside an institution of lower, middle, or higher learning. He could not read nor write. So at age 16, he went to a public school with five and six-year-olds to learn to read and write. In his memoirs, he says, it was pure torture and mortification. It would have been difficult enough to learn to read and write. It is for five-year-olds. What was difficult, what added to the difficulty, of course, was that uh, John Wesley Hughes, a 16-year-old boy uh, with aspirations, destiny called of God, was in class with small children, who I have no doubt waste no uh, opportunity to ridicule and mortify him. He graduated from this enterprise and decided he had to go to college. This is an unusual idea for a 16-year-old boy who has only just learned to read and write. He decides to go to Kentucky Wesleyan, which is 13 miles away from his home. And so in 1874, John Wesley Hughes and another little boy who remains unnamed rides to Kentucky Wesleyan College on a horse. The job of the other little boy is to take the horse back. Uh, John Wesley Hughes' home farm. John Wesley Hughes, uh, John Wesley Hughes tells us in his autobiography that he was terrified, having never in his life seen a college. Never mind been inside. He had never seen a college, never seen an institution of higher learning, and here he was presenting himself at the doorstep to be enrolled. He worked very, very hard and did very well. He was literate. He was a hard worker. The curriculum of a college in the, in the middle 1870s would not have been beyond his capability. It would have consisted mostly of memorization. And since he was quick and a hard worker, he had the ability to memorize, and he did fairly well. But he got discouraged because he had to work his way through as a janitor and uh, help with the dishes and uh, stoke fire in the basement. And because he wasn't as fast as those that had been to prep school and had already knew Latin and Greek before they got to college, so he became discouraged and he decided to leave. Here's where the devil misplayed his hand. We're grateful, of course, for the regularity with which the devil misplays his hand. He misplayed it this time. He taunted John Wesley Hughes with the thought that if he went back after only a few months, wouldn't all the neighbors laugh? Nobody in John Wesley Hughes' family or in his town, and probably very few in his county, had ever been to an institution of higher learning. For him to go back in shame after a few months would just confirm their opinion that he was trumped up and presumptuous and an egotist. Well, John Wesley Hughes accepted that's right. If I go back, I look like a fool. So he didn't. He stayed. He graduated in 1876 and he got a certificate. Now, in 1876, a certificate from two years of a college was regarded as an advanced state of higher education. Up until very recently, people who wanted to teach in high school had only to go to college two years in state normal schools, they used to be called. Many state uh, universities were formerly normal schools, uh, and the, the curriculum was only two years, like a junior college now. Well, he got this certificate, graduated, in other words, from, from Kentucky Wesleyan, and he was accepted by the Kentucky Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church South in Nicholasville, Kentucky. He had uh, $200 in debt. Uh, he had, he tells us, two songs, think two songs and a sermon, and was ready to go on his multiple point charge. Of course, he had to buy a horse and a saddle and saddlebags and a bridle and four horses, four shoes for the horse, I'm sure, and maybe suit for himself so that he could ride around and preach at these various little pulpits. He had a gift for preaching, and he was a success. He went up, 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 but it, he wasn't satisfied. In 1878, he felt he should finish his education. And this time he went to Vanderbilt University in 1878. Again, he had to work his way through and he was very industrious. You must bear this in mind. It's a key to John Wesley Hughes' career. It's a key to his success. That's one of the elements I want to leave with you as, as a lesson from his life. He was industrious. He made the most out of what he had. He worked very hard physically to stay in school and keep up with his subjects. Others were out having a big time, which was very common in college in the 1880s. Actually, college was not central to people's lives as it is now. Only a tiny percentage of people went to college in the 1880s, and generally they were well-to-do people. It was a kind of a continuation of the expensive prep education that they'd had 
before they reached uh, college age. And also, by the way, college age varied widely in the 1880s from 13, 14 up to people in their mid-30s. Different picture from now. But most of them were idlers. They could afford merely to uh, put in a perfunctory performance in the books and they could get by. So John Wesley Hughes was working very, very hard and he was doing very, very well. And he came to the attention of a well-to-do man from Chicago, well-to-do young man from Chicago. His name was McClintock, who loaned John Wesley Hughes $300 so he could finish at Vanderbilt or offered to loan him $300. John Wesley Hughes was embarrassed because he was a hardworking person and industrious and willing to make his own way. But the $300, again, let me make an aside, a very large sum of money in 1880s money, uh, easily the equivalent of $25,000 in our money. Fortune. There's no $300 now, the price of, you know, of a CD, nothing like that. It was a fortune, $25,000, $30,000, enormous sum of money. He certainly could finish college easily on that amount of money. So he struggles. Oh, he prays. He doesn't. He's embarrassed. So he prays through his pride, and he resolves to do two things. To swallow his pride for the kingdom and take the money, which he is honorably going to pay back. So it's not a theft. And second thing he resolves is that if he ever has a chance, he is going to help other worthy poor people to advance their education. So he takes the man's $300 and he graduates. He returns to the Kentucky Conference and now he is very well educated by the standards of the day. Very well educated indeed. One of the best educated pastors certainly in the state of Kentucky. And so his career is more stellar. In 1887, he is promoted, he is transferred, he is appointed to a large Methodist Episcopal church in Carlisle. In Carlisle, John Wesley Hughes accepts a call which he's been struggling with before to become a full-time evangelist. He resigns from the Methodist Episcopal Church as a, as a pastor, as a station pastor, accepts an appointment as a conference evangelist, and builds himself a home, a 10-room house of the style of the houses you see around here. As I say, the style of domestic uh, building has not changed too much in the last 100 years. So he sets himself up, and he sets out on the road as an evangelist. In 1889, he begins to feel that he should be doing something more for people like himself than was done for him. In 1890, he receives the clarion call in the central depot of Lexington. He's been on the road for a month. He is sitting in the railway station waiting to catch the train to Carlisle. Lexington in those days for the railroad was uh, like Atlanta is now, or Chicago for airplanes. It was a hub, and the trains radiated out, and they converged there, and you could take trains to smaller places that didn't have the traffic to warrant big stations of their own. So off he goes to uh, Carlisle on the train. And while he's riding on the train, he is struggling with this calling. He puts his hat down over his head so nobody will bother him. He played like he was asleep. And um, he prays the whole way back to Carlisle because he is deeply troubled by this calling. He is not prepared. He has no experience in running a school. He does not know the first thing to do. And let me make another little aside. There are many times in John Wesley's, uh, John Wesley Hughes' life when he did not have the faintest idea what to do. Do not be discouraged with yourself if you don't know what to do. He did not know what to do. He wanted to do the right thing. He was highly motivated to do the right thing. He did not know what to do. He was led what to do. He took good advice. Sometimes he made mistakes. All redemptive. God used it all. He accepts the call. He tells his wife, I've been called to start a college. He's in tears. She's in tears. I'll support you anywhere. This is the final sign. He offers this wonderful boon to the town of Carlisle. Not on your tintype, says the town of Carlisle. We don't want it. <laughs> his hopes are temporarily dashed. But a man named Grinstead who was pastor of Roberts uh, Chapel here in uh, Desmond County, and also pastor of the Wilmore Methodist Episcopal Church South, right next door. He was pastor there, this Grinstead. He offers to invite, or he invites, um, he hears of this through conference gossip, and he invites John Wesley Hughes to Wilmore. John Wesley Hughes comes to Wilmore, and lucky for us, he falls in love with the place. 
He says, I thought then, and I think now, that Wilmore is a model location for a college. And he gave four reasons, or really five. He only gave four in his autobiography. The first is, he said, it is a country of honest farmers. He said, Wilmore has a second advantage. It is distant and protected from the confusion and the wickedness of city life. A reference, no doubt, to the bustling metropolis of Lexington which in 1890 had a population of 22,000 people and was the second largest city in Kentucky. The third reason, he said, was that of the magnificent climate of Wilmore. And Kentucky does have an agreeable climate, the occasional exception, agreeable enough place. And fourthly, he said, it's very pretty. It is, in the language of the 18, uh, 1890s, quite quaint and picturesque. So for those four reasons, he was prompted to think about putting his project here. But there was a fifth reason, and that is that in February of 1890, there, uh, a revival had broken out at the Wilmore Church, Wilmore branch of the Methodist Episcopal Church. East Kentucky Holiness Association had had a, a, a meeting, their annual meeting here in February, and a revival had resulted from this. So there was an interest in holiness in the town, among the Christian people of the town. So that was a fifth reason. He felt comfortable with his ideas. Well, Grinstead loves this thought. This is going to make Wilmore. And it's going to be a big boon for the, for the Methodist Episcopal Church South as well, of course. So he gets some of the local landowners together, a handful of people with names like Lowry and Scott, names that you see on streets and uh, historically around. He gets them together, and John Wesley Hughes makes a deal with them. He says, if you will raise $1,600 by May, I'll pay you back by educating your children for free. Now, that may seem like an odd deal. $1,600, if $300 was a fortune, $1,600 was a very large sum of money. Well, it was enough to build a college from scratch, the fortune. It may seem odd that he would offer them in exchange for such a large sum of money, something like free tuition. Interesting fact, he proposed not just to start a college, but a grammar school and a high school and a college, and there was no grammar school or high school in Jasmine County. And these well-off farmers wanted their children to go to school, and there was no school. They'd start, they tried to have a school earlier with a bondage and it had fallen through. So they were eager, it was a deal. They did it. They offered him the $1,600, and he bought four acres of land right next to this church right here in Wilmore, and he built a little four-room house, two rooms up, two rooms down, which just for a few weeks with a college while they built a much larger building, um, which they finished in November of 1890, just after the school started, the Kentucky Holiness School, he called it. I might say that this little building is now on our campus, a kind of little historical shrine, really only served as the college for, from September till November of 1890. And then a little while after that, it was a boys dormitory, but they built a much larger brick structure here on this side or next door here. Uh, and it was opened in November. It's a much more substantial building, quite large. In fact, the largest building in Jessamine County and one of the largest and most substantial buildings in central Kentucky is no joke. He didn't really operate out of that little white house for very long. This is a serious proposition. He asked the bishop if the bishop would appoint him to president of Kentucky Holiness School. No, said the bishop, I won't. Do you want to know why? Because all Methodist schools are holiness schools. I don't like your name. Well, John Wesley, he was admitted privately. I don't like it either. It's a little presumptuous to tell you the truth. So he goes to praying. God, he said, reveal a new name to him. So he's praying, he's struggling, and he's reading the history of Methodism, and he comes across the citation that Francis Asbury had built the first Christian school west of the Appalachians in 1790 in Jessamine County just down the road here. Ah, it's an inspiration. It's a revelation. He sees it all fitting together, the divine plan. Methodist, 100 years earlier, 1790, Jessamine County, it's a revelation. So he decides to, call, to rename his school Asbury College. In 1891, he renamed the Kentucky Holiness School Asbury College, and he gives it a motto, which was industry, thoroughness, and salvation, which was also the motto of his life and his ministry and his witness and his gift to God. Industry, thoroughness, and salvation, along with holiness under the Lord. 
you know, it's a little book. Like the, the logo was a round circle, a little book. And on one side of the page of the book was holiness unto the Lord. And on the other side of the little book, industry, thoroughness, and salvation. I might say also that this early, John Wesley Hughes was sensitive to what we would call the needs of the constituency. We don't, he didn't use that kind of language. That's modern language. But that's what he meant. He wanted to broaden the service orientation of the school. Again, this is modern language, but it's what he meant. He wanted to draw more people into the ministry. He wanted to serve more people. He wanted to help more people learn how to serve others. And I say that to say that in 1890, the curriculum of the school was classic and biblical, mostly, again, memorizing classical languages and memorizing passages from the Bible. In 1891, the first major decision he made, and this, I think, will be of interest to our business faculty, he added bookkeeping. He styled this adding a business college. He added bookkeeping, which was, uh, there was no real accounting in the 1890s. Bookkeeping was really as far as it got. So he added bookkeeping to broaden the constituency and broaden the appeal. So bookkeeping, so accounting, so business has been an integral part of our ministry uh, since the school was only one year old. Well, the school prospered. It was in a vacuum. In a secular sense, it served the needs of the county and the state in ways that other schools could not do. In a spiritual sense, it began to appeal in a much more, in a much broader way, in a much more extensive way, uh, in a much more kingdom-extending way than even Hughes could have envisioned. And I'll tell you why that is in just a minute when I explain to you what I think are the lessons of his life. In 1895, the school began or committed itself in an official way to its traditional emphasis on missions. A missionary society was founded. And in 1898, uh, the student volunteers began. Now, this would mean nothing to any of you. I don't even think our oldest faculty would have had any connection with the student volunteers. Uh, but at the turn of the century, it was the largest Protestant youth missionary organization in the United States, the student volunteers. They used to have uh, prayer meetings on Monday morning, which were just galvanic. Many lives were changed. Many were saved and sanctified in these famous student volunteer um, prayer meetings on Monday morning in what used to be called Talbot Chapel, which is behind, well, it's where Dr. Kinlaw's office and Dr. Blue's office and, and the dean's office there and behind the administration building there used to be a chapel that they converted into offices when Hughes Auditorium was built. It was a much nicer big chapel there. When we finally get it rebuilt, you'll see that again. You probably forgot what it looks like. <laughs> How quickly we forget. Something went awry with Hughes in 1905, and it doesn't matter over much to us now. It doesn't diminish his ministry. Uh, Hughes was a, a human being. Uh, Hughes was not an experienced school administrator. He learned by doing, and he made some mistakes. Uh, in 1905, he was dismissed by the Board of Trustees, which he had, I suppose in retrospect, we'd have to say rather short-sightedly, <laughs> given the power to dismiss presidents. That was their first act. Oh, thanks for the power. You're fired. <laughs> he was ill. He suffered a stroke in 1898 and uh, spent a good deal of his time in Florida. Operating on the supposition, which was very common in the 1890s and the turn of the century, that if a man sat on the veranda of the Tampa Bay Hotel, completely dressed, wing color, hat, tie, three or four layers of clothing, for an hour every day in the afternoon, he would be cured of a stroke. So he spent a good part of his time in Florida. He also had some difficulties financially. Hughes owned the college outright, and so people were reluctant to donate to him because it was not an institution, it wasn't a board of trustees who would give some outside control or some kind of collective wisdom. It was just his own personal property. It was a proprietary school, very common in the 19th century. Well, because of that, uh, people were reluctant to donate more than just a pittance. In fact, hardly any donations at all. And the school was really struggling financially. It was entirely enrollment-driven. There was hardly any endowment. It wasn't in debt, but it was really um, a fragile basis. Well, he sensed this, and he tried various schemes to bring in money, all of which failed. And finally, he accepted that he would have to create a board of trustees. 
We wrote a charter that guaranteed the school would be committed to holiness. Um, and if it not, it would revert to the Christian Holiness Association. It's now called, the organization is. And he turned it over to a board of trustees. One of the first acts that the board did was to expand itself. He just had a few and they got elected more in. And then the second thing they did was that they eliminated Hughes for reasons which are obscure and which do not in any way affect his ministry. He's actually kind of a nice fellow. Didn't take this bad at all. He leaves, <laughs> naturally. They offered him a job as a... Uh, I can't remember teaching Bible or something, which is honorable enough, but yeah, under the circumstances, he was embarrassed by this offer, which was only a consolation. So off he goes, and he starts a new school, Kingswood, over in the western part of the state, buys a thousand acres, but that does not succeed. His wife dies in 1914, and in 1915, he returns to Wilmore, lives in that house that I mentioned, he lives there honorably, served on the College Board of Trustees, a benign father figure, the honored founder of the institution, a counselor, a friend, a supporter, and died peaceably in his sleep in 1932. Towards the end of his life, John Wesley Hughes was asked if he thought it was worth it. And I want to read to you what he wrote. Somebody asked him a question, and he wrote it in a little notebook. And after he died, his daughter found this little notebook. He says, somebody asked me today if founding Asbury College was worth it to me. I want to read what he said. Was this worth it to me, he asks. And then he writes out in longhand, yes, it was worth it to me, not in dollars and cents, but in soul success. And in the souls that have been saved and sanctified and the compound interest it is now earning, and I will trust till Jesus comes. I have coveted no man's money, no place, no reputation. But for 51 and a half years, I have coveted all young life for God himself. Three lessons from the life of John Wesley Hughes. The first is the great appeal of holiness teaching, of the holiness doctrine. Put aside the arid dryness of 19th century theological debate. Put aside a debate about lifestyle, which continues to animate and defeat in many ways those of us who are committed to holiness and doctrine or holiness in personal experience. Think only of the enormous appeal in the 19th century and the enormous appeal now of the awareness, the recognition, the propagation that we can be completely sold out to God, that he can reign absolutely in our lives, that we can so love him and so love one another in him that Jesus Christ lives in our heart. That used to be the dominant force in the Methodist church. It became less and less so. And now it is uh, only the animating force of, of minority. But it is certainly the strong dynamic that pushes Asbury College forward into her 200th year. The second lesson in his life is the lesson that can be learned when we look at the life of someone who was completely sold out, completely committed, completely surrendered, completely submitted to God. I wouldn't say John Wesley Hughes was an ordinary person. This is not an illustration of, a, of, of an equally forceful truth that ordinary people sold out to God can ex uh, achieve extraordinary things. He was, he was ordinary in his mental capacity. He was ordinary in his judgments of people, but he was extraordinary in his commitment. To have gone to school at 16, to have gone on to college through all that adversity, to go to a second college to get a four-year degree, extraordinary in his day, much, much rarer than getting, say, three PhDs would be in our day. It was that rare, it was that unusual for him to have two college degrees, very unusual. So that kind of commitment, that kind of dedication, he believed in industry and in thoroughness and in salvation. Those were the models of his life. He was a hard worker, he was a detail man, and every ounce of energy he expended and every little detail that he did, he did as a witness and as a gift. John Wesley Hughes' life is a great illustration of a life sold out to God. And the third thing, the third lesson in his life, and with this I will end, is the reality of the Isaiah experience. John Wesley Hughes heard an audible call to do a specific thing. Now, whether theologically we can say that that is a common experience, that that is a universal experience, that everybody can claim that, and everybody has a right to expect it, and people should be disappointed if that does not happen, I cannot say. 
I leave that to my Bible scholar friends, and they may be divided on this, but it certainly happened with John Wesley Hughes. He heard an audible call to do a specific thing, a clear and specific call, which he accepted completely, absolutely. He submitted to that call. I want to read to you another brief paragraph from that same notebook to which I made earlier reference. I had seen and felt the need for years of a real salvation school where religious men and women could hold their salvation and where unsaved and unsanctified students would not only be encouraged, but urged to get saved and sanctified and prepared educationally for their work. Those who were fully saved and educationally equipped would be urged by faculty and fellow students to hold themselves in readiness to say to the Lord and to the church as did Isaiah in his vision of God and his holiness and a lost world in sin, here am I, send me. Thank you.